We started a little series last week trying to see pictures of Christ and his salvation from Old Testament people, uh, places, and events. And last week we focused on Abraham. And we saw that um, Jesus is the one promised through the seed of Abraham. We read several things about that. But also we read about Abraham and his meeting of Melchizedek. And how that Jesus was to become um, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And one of the similarities was that, that Melchizedek was king of Salem... But he also was the most high priest of God. And so um, Jesus also has come and he has uh, been resurrected. Now he is, he is on the right hand of God serving as our king and serving as our high priest. We also notice the offering of Isaac that was commanded by God of Abraham to go to Mount Moriah and offer his son there as a sacrifice. Isaac was the one through whom the promised seed would come. It was a very unusual command, but God tested Abraham, and Abraham passed the test. And that offering of Isaac has some similarities uh, to the offering of Jesus in our behalf. And then God had um, confirmed his covenant with Abraham a long time ago through the uh, act of circumcision. And we noticed that a little bit last week and how that that uh, brings some similarities to our dying to sin and being baptized into Christ, according to Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And so we'll look at Moses tonight, and especially want to begin by noticing a couple statements from Exodus 14, the one in Exodus 14, 13, and Exodus 14, 30, having to do with um, the deliverance of um, God's people, Israel, from Egyptian bondage. And this, there's so many things we could talk about in regard to Moses and Christ, but we'll just focus on the deliverance from the bondage time. And we'll see several parallels between the deliverance from Egypt and our deliverance from sin. And so in many ways this will be a basic lesson, but also it'll be a great lesson to, um, to put into our memories and share uh, with others. Let's begin, though, by reading from 1 Corinthians 10, and you'll see why here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians uh, 10, Paul is uh, finishing up in 1 Corinthians 9, talking about how that the Christian life is like a race, and it's really like a marathon. You can't, you can't begin this race without finishing it. You must finish. You must finish strong, and you must watch out for obstacles in the way. And so in emphasizing that in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul brings up examples from the Old Testament right during the time of Moses bringing the people out of, out of Egypt. Uh, he brings up these examples to encourage the brethren to not stop. Uh, don't, don't stop. And remember that the devil is still after us even after we become uh, members of the church. So let's read here. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, and we'll just go through verse, verse number 5 to begin with. I want you to know, brothers, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And if you keep reading, you see they were overthrown in the wilderness because of various sins that came up in their life. From this great spot in history, we can see several parallels make several comparisons between God's bringing them out of Egypt and then his bringing us out of sin and putting us in a relationship with him. So get ready here and fill out your paper as we go through it. And then also we'll have uh, the same thing on the screen that you see on the paper. Okay. Number one, as Israel was delivered by the greatness of God, As Israel was delivered by the greatness of God, so are we, and here are several passages. Why do we say the greatness of God? Let me just ask you here in the audience. When you think about God's delivering from Egypt, what what are some of the thoughts that come to you? How does God bring out his greatness in this deliverance? What do you think of? They had to depend on him. They couldn't do it by themselves. Okay, what else comes to your mind? Think about the deliverance itself. And how God shows his greatness. The passage we have down here is uh, Exodus 14. and um, But the first one there is Exodus 12, 29. Exodus 12 mentions the last plague of God upon Egypt. What was that last plague? Death of the firstborn. Who can name off some of the other plagues? The water of the blood was probably the first one. The frogs. And the flies. I think you're going almost in order. Flies. Gnats. And the locusts. And the cattle. And the darkness. Lies. Okay. Say frog. Say frog. That probably mostly covers all of them, I think. But God had demonstrated his power and his greatness over and over to Egypt. And it's, it's remarkable how that we end up focusing on this last plague because it has broader meaning for us down into the future. But look how patient God was. And mercifully was to to the Egyptians, giving them opportunity after opportunity uh, to turn back and and, uh, change their hearts. And they they simply did not. God shows his greatness, especially here in Exodus 14, 29, when you notice the last plague and um, how that um, the death of the firstborn came. Even in Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh lost his first son. And then it also says there in this passage in Exodus 12 that there was not a house in Egypt except for the children of Israel's house. There wasn't a house in Egypt that was not experiencing death. And that's, that's quite um, specific and really uh, threatening to think about. Not a house in Egypt that did not experience uh, death. And so... One thing that it definitely compares here as a parallel is that we see the greatness of God then uh, during this time, but also uh, we see the greatness of God 
uh, now. Now, of course, one thing God set up for his own people there as, the, as that last plague come, as you know, he had them spread the blood of what? Spread the blood of a lamb. Where at? On their doorposts. And that became not only a great event that night that saved the Israelites, but also it became an important uh, annual event. The observance of the Passover uh, came from that, of course. And then that was a lamb. And this uh, picture is Jesus because John one twenty nine. that passage is down here. What does John one twenty nine say? What did John the Baptist say about Jesus? What did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Behold the what? Behold the Lamb of God, John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is that Lamb. Peter talks about Jesus being that, that uh, Lamb without spot, without blemish there in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. And he didn't have a spot or blemish. And uh, it is through then his blood that we are redeemed uh, from our sins. Okay. So we see the greatness of God. God's greatness is not only seen in his power, but also, as we said, in his mercy. And we tend to think of that uh, most often as, as service of Christ today. We think about how great God is. One of the passages that always jumps into my mind is Romans 8 and 32. If God spared not his own son. You remember that passage, Larry? If God spared not his own son, shall he not uh, freely give us all things? And it's just a great guarantee that if God would give his own son to us for our sins, then he's also going to provide the things that we need in, in life as we serve him. So the greatness of God. What other uh, thoughts do you have about God's greatness in, in regard to both the deliverance from Egypt, but also in our deliverance through the blood of the Lamb uh, today? Feed all those people with a lot, of, a lot of greatness. You're right. Now there are a lot of other passages in the Bible that pick up on this historical event and talk about it. Turn your Bibles over to Psalm 66, verse 6, and you do read it right there. 666. You'll never forget this verse. 666. Psalm 666. And there are several psalms that actually uh, will. Um, emphasize the power of God by referring back to this event, uh, the deliverance event. Psalm 66, verse 6, starting in verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned a sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him. So, again... Uh, kind of extolling the greatness of God. Now, speaking of that dry land, if you take your Bibles and look at Exodus uh, 14, it's almost as if the Lord really wanted us to know that this is a true, genuine miracle. Notice how often the emphasis made that they walked through on dry ground when they went through uh, the Red Sea. Notice Exodus uh, 14 Mark your Bibles, uh, Exodus 14 and uh, verse 16. 
The Lord said to Moses, Lift up your staff and stretch it over your stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through and the sea and do it on dry ground. Notice that. They went through on dry ground. And then notice Exodus fourteen twenty one. Exodus fourteen twenty one. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. He made the sea uh, dry land. And the waters were divided. Verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. On dry ground. The waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. And then look at verse uh, 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground. Verse 28 talks about how the waters came down on the, on the chariots and the horsemen of Pharaoh and his warriors. But verse 29, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. If you check Hebrews 11, it talks about this event. Again, it says dry ground or dry land. So it's a wonderful miracle of God, power of God. So as we reflect on the greatness of God in that day, we also remember what, what a great thing he did on Calvary, on, on the cross, in the cross of Jesus uh, during those days as well. Okay? Number two, as Israel, notice these blanks here, number two, as Israel had nowhere, nowhere else to turn, that's what we want right there, as Israel had nowhere else to turn, according to Exodus 14. So we also must be desperate for the Lord. That's the idea. That's the parallel. If you look at Exodus 14, you'll see that God spoke to Moses and He said, Okay, stay right there. I want you to camp between this certain place and the Red Sea. I want you to stop. Now think about that. The, the, the Egyptians are coming after them. God said, I want you to stop right here. This is far enough. God intended to put them in this situation. Their backs was against, they were against the wall. Their backs were against the wall. But God intended, he, he designed this so that people could, one thing, they could see that he was the one bringing this salvation. But also, he wanted his people to really depend on him. So their backs was against the wall. That in itself is, is something to consider. There are times in our lives where we feel like we have nowhere else to go. That we, we, we can't go to man. Man doesn't have the solution. Man doesn't have the solution to sin, for sure. Man doesn't have the solution to eternity. Man doesn't have the solution to the purpose of life. And so we're driven. We're actually driven to God, if we're if we're good, honest folks, if, if we're thoughtful, then we are driven to God. And that's the idea here, that if we are considering the Lord and looking at His Bible, His His Word, then we definitely will be driven to Him. This is part of what. Let's turn. Let's turn over one of these passages, James. Let's look at James uh, four, right quick. Hebrews, James. James 4, verses 7 through 10, brings us out that God wants us to become severely dependent upon Him. 
He wants us to understand that we have no other place to go but Him for salvation and really for life itself. And so this is something that James is bringing out. James 4, verse, uh, beginning in verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will, he will exalt you. He will lift you up. When he says here, we need to be afflicted, mourn, and weep. He's not saying that we should not live a joyful life, but we should, we should be sure to allow our sins and our shortcomings and our weaknesses to cause us to, to get humble and to stay humble. And yes, even to, to mourn over our, our lack of faith or whatever it may be that's plaguing us. Okay. And that ought to make us dependent upon of the Lord. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, He said, Blessed are those who do mourn, for they should be comforted. I think he's thinking, he's thinking about and talking about this very ideal of being able to give up ourselves and, and let the Lord totally uh, direct our lives. So notice here number two. In those days, Israel had nowhere else to turn because their backs were against the wall and so therefore they had to turn to God. And God... As we come to Him, He expects the same from us. Alright? Number three. Number three on our, on our paper here. As Israel responded through faith and obedience, as Israel responded through faith and obedience, of course, we must do this as well. We won't linger here because we emphasize that pretty good with Abraham. When Abraham offered Isaac, according to James 2, uh, he, did, he had a lot of faith. In fact, his works of offering Isaac and of obeying God made his faith uh, perfect. This is illustrated also by the children of Israel in Hebrews eleven twenty nine, when it says, By faith they walked through on dry land. Okay. Now, in the first place tonight, we're talking about the greatness of God and how He provides this deliverance both in that time and our salvation from sin. But there's always a point where God asks us to, to have faith and the only true faith in God is that which moves and does what He says. God opened up the sea and there was the dry land. But those thousands of people, they had to get on there and, and get, get into the sea and walk on that dry ground and walk across. And so... Number three, through faith and obedience. We wish the world could really grasp this ideal of faith uh, because it is plainly spoken in Scripture and um, we just must keep teaching it, as you very well know. Number four, as Israel came out of Egyptian bondage, okay, as Israel came out of Egyptian bondage, so we come out of the bondage of sin. And Jesus mentions how sin can become a bondage to us in John 8 and 34. 
And it is the blood of Jesus that purchases us, that brings us out of our enslavement, according to Acts 20 and verse 28. And so this is pretty straightforward, and, and I don't want us to linger here very long, but that is certainly a comparison and a parallel there. Number five, as Israel passed through, those are our words for number five, as Israel uh, as Israel passed through the Red Sea and were saved, as we mentioned uh, as we began our studies tonight, Exodus uh, 14, 13, Moses said to the people, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And so as, as Israel passed through the Red Sea and they were saved, so we are saved through the waters of baptism, as you very well know. As they passed through the sea and were saved, and so we are saved through the waters of baptism. This jumps out at us in the first passage we read together in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, verse 1 and following, how that the people were baptized unto Moses, and that's a direct parallel to our baptism uh, into Christ. Okay. Now, I was reading a denominational commentator on on 1 Corinthians 10, he got to, I was, I, the reason I was reading him, I wanted to see what he would say about this straightforward comparison. And here's what he said. He said, he said the Red Sea experience signified was a symbol of the deliverance from Egypt. And so baptism today is, uh, is a signal or a symbol of our deliverance from sin. And I thought, really? He wrote that. Think about it. Suppose we could go back in time and talk to one of these uh, people of Israel who actually walked through the sea and go up to them and say, you know that Red Sea experience? Uh, We understand that was just a a symbol of of the deliverance that God uh, brought to you. Right? It was just a symbol. And they would look at us they would look at us and they would say, a symbol? Well, our salvation came through the Red Sea. We were, not, we were not delivered from the pursuing Egyptians until we passed through the Red Sea. Our salvation was not complete, they would tell us, until we went through that Red Sea. Of course that's what they would tell us. And naturally then, we make the application to the waters of baptism today. 1 Peter 3.21, the light figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. And there are many multiple passages. In fact, every time you find baptism and salvation mentioned together in the New, Te- in the New Testament, baptism always comes before and not after the forgiveness for salvation that's mentioned. So it's just too, it's too straightforward to miss, but um, we do miss it sometimes. And notice these obvious facts about baptism uh, as we make these comparisons. It had to be an immersion because 1 Corinthians uh, 10 verse 1 says the cloud was over them. Now somebody tell me, what cloud was this? What cloud are we talking about? Go back, just stay in Egypt. Stay in Egypt, stay in that time. What was the cloud all about? 
The what? Yeah, the pillar of cloud by what? By day. Pillar of fire by night. Okay. So when they get to this point, uh, it's clear that God's presence is in this cl- these clouds. Okay. And so as the Egyptians pursue and they get close to the Red Sea and the deliverance is about to come, God overshadows, evidently. In fact, Exodus says that he gets behind the children of Israel, kind of makes a wall between the, the Israelites and the Egyptians, but then 1 Corinthians 10.1 says that he was also, the cloud was also over them. And then we've already read how that when Moses divided those waters on either side, on the right hand and the left hand, uh, the water became walls on either side. So they went, they were literally immersed, they were surrounded okay, uh, by these waters. And so uh, just like that then, uh, our baptism today is an immersion, and you, you all know that. So here on our paper, they're immersed by the cloud over them and the waters of the sea around them. Okay, and this is brought out in these passages. They're immersed by the cloud over them and by the, uh, by the waters of the sea around them. Now the next blank here I think is, is one of the great truths of the Bible. It says the Red Sea, blank, blank, and then a couple other blanks. Okay. But you're going to be glad that we have these blanks here. Okay. Here's what I want in these blanks. The Red Sea stood between their bondage and their freedom. And that's obvious. The Red Sea stood between their bondage and their freedom. If they don't go through the Red Sea, then they don't get uh, delivered from Egyptian bondage. And God has set it up to where that has been the case in, in different happenings in the Bible. In Noah's day, okay, water was in play there. Okay. We read in 1 Peter 3 and 20, eight souls were saved by water. Okay. Water stood between the old world, the old violent world in Noah's day, and then the new world that Noah and his family came out and enjoyed uh, after the waters recited. Okay. Water stood in between that old world and the new world. What about Naaman? What about Naaman? What, what kind of disease did Na- Naaman have? He had leprosy. And of course you remember the instruction from the prophet was to go dip in the Jordan how many times? Seven times. Seven times. Okay. So the water stood between the diseased body of Naaman and then his cleansed body, his healed body. In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. What does he tell the blind man to do? What does he tell him to do? Go wash where? Pool of Siloam. What did the man do? He went and washed and he came seeing. The water stood in between his blindness and his seeing. And so you really are not surprised that God would include water in the salvation that we find in Christ. Things prove that God has expectations for 
answers those expectations. Right. When we show our faith. We do what God says. Yeah. Humanity doesn't want to do that. Right. Because we don't want to let Him be in control. Kim poses a question, why do people have such a hard time seeing this, both faith and obedience together, and then it, that it includes the water of baptism? And his answer is, and what is your answer, but his answer is because people don't want God to have complete control uh, of their lives. What, what is your answer uh, to that? Well, probably Ken nailed it um, Right there on the head. Some people don't know. Some people don't know. Some people have never seen these comparisons. And so we need to try to uh, share these as much as we, we possibly can. Yeah. I have been going through the old Jewel Miller workbooks. How many of you guys remember those? Remember? Well, uh, Anna here was baptized two or three Wednesday nights ago. And so when a person is baptized, you've got to continue to study. And I, I told her and Anthony, I said, I got just a thing. And we've just been reading through those old booklets. You don't have to show the film trips in order to use the booklets. You can just read the passages and the comments right there by the pictures in the booklets. And you know, they've been in our foyer forever. And boy, those things are so good. And they bring out a lot of these comparisons and it really helps us not only see a survey of the entire Bible, but also uh, see how God had planned uh, the salvation in Christ all along. That's what these old pictures are showing us, is that God had salvation. He had us in mind. He had salvation in Jesus in mind all along uh, the way. Now, I just get excited about that. First uh, Corinthians uh, 10, verse 1 says that they were baptized into Moses, that is, into a relationship with him, into his leadership, God leading the people through Moses. So in the same way, we're baptized into Christ today, into his leadership, uh, into a relationship uh, with him. All right? So let's move on now uh, to number six. As Israel entered the wilderness upon uh, passing through the waters... As Israel entered the wilderness upon passing through the waters, Exodus 15, verse 22, uh, so upon baptism one enters the church. And so if Egyptian bondage is parallel to sin bondage, and the deliverance to the Red Sea is parallel to baptism, then the wilderness wanderings are parallel to being in the church. Okay. And that's what exactly happened then, and that's how the parallel goes uh, for us today. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, as you know, says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. And Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 clearly state that that body is uh, the church. So is the church important in our salvation? Is the church important in Christian living? Of course it is. Of course it is. We assume all responsibilities toward God as we come up out of the waters of baptism. We are made for, we are, we are once servants of sin, Romans 6, uh, 17, but that baptism, that obedience makes us um, servants of righteousness. Where are servants of righteousness? They're in the vineyard. They're in, they're in the household of God. They're in the body. They're in, they're in the church. They're in the kingdom of our God. Okay. 
Number seven, as Israel entered the wilderness and partook of water and bread, and you remember this from your studies and your readings. So we partake of spiritual food today. As Israel entered the wilderness and partook of water and bread that God provided, and you remember that, sometimes just springs of water right there in the wilderness. That's what, that's what Exodus uh, 15.27 brings up. Sometimes water out of a rock, and certainly he brought them uh, man in the morning and then meat, quail uh, in the evening. What did the people often do, though God provided? They often complain. That's right. We want the sweet onions of Egypt that we left behind. That's right. They'd rather have the bondage and their food than have their freedom and what God provides. So we partake of spiritual food. Jesus told the devil, man shall not live by what? But by what? Matthew 4, verse 4. And numerous passages relate the Word of God to, to uh, food that we eat. Okay. Number 8. As the Lord's presence, the Lord's presence was with Israel, so He promises uh, to be with us today. The uh, monitor is showing the partaking of the bread and water, and then we partake of spiritual food. And then next is, as the Lord's presence was with Israel, and there are passages right there on the monitor that we didn't get on the uh, we didn't get on the sheet, basically saying that His angel was with them as they came through the Red Sea and began their journeys in the wilderness. His presence was with them. God was in the clouds. He was in the pillar of cloud. He was in the uh, pillar of fire. Uh, God's presence was known to them. The people knew that God was speaking to them through Moses. So today, and this is important, we can be sure that God is with us. Philippians 4 verse 5 King James Version says, Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Another acceptable translation there is, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is close by. The Lord is close by. We need to remember that in these days, the Lord has not left us. All right? Okay. So following verse five there in Philippians four, Ken is reading verse six and seven, where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication let your Thanksgiving be known to God. Let your request be made known to God. Then the peace of God will come right in there. Basically, we counter every anxious moment with a prayer to God. 
How many prayers does that mean you need to be praying a day? Yeah, that's why 1 Thessalonians 5 says pray without ceasing. For every anxious moment, that must be followed up with prayer. And then we've got to leave it right there at the throne of God, which is not easy to do. But it is, that's what God calls, us, calls upon us to do. Better than any pill we can take, but it's not the easiest thing in the world. Number nine, as Israel sinned after entering the wilderness, so there's danger for us as well as we're in the church. One of the great sins of Israel in the wilderness was when Moses went out and he sent spies into the promised land. And what happened then? How many many spies did he send out? Twelve. How many came back with a good report? God was ready to be done with the people. If you read there in Exodus 14, uh, verse 11, Moses had, as he often had to do, Moses had to plead before God, Lord, don't do this thing. Don't wipe out your people. What would the other countries say? What would the other gods, what would the, other, what would the people of other gods uh, say? Moses pled before him. But this unbelief, uh, God doesn't tolerate that very long at all. The people came back, the ten unfaithful report, unfaithful spies came back and they said, we, we can't do this. We're, we're as grasshoppers in their sight. So God wants faith and not fear. God wants faith and not fear. Number ten, As Israel crossed Jordan, that's the Jordan River, as Israel as Israel crossed Jordan, that would be the Jordan River, and entered Canaan, as they crossed Jordan and entered Canaan, so for us, there's great hope when we cross the river of death. Last three blanks there is the river of death. As Israel crossed Jordan and entered Canaan, which we refer to as the promised land. Um, so us today, when we get when we get to the brink of the river of death, then there's tremendous hope for us. God promised to bring the faithful into the promised land in Moses' day, Joshua's day, So, He'll bring us to that promised land that we long for as well. So we got through all ten. These are are ten uh, comparisons or ten parallels. I hope this has been very helpful and I hope also it's... uh, to where the reason I put down a lot of scripture, I knew we couldn't get to the, all this scripture, but uh, take, take the extra time you may have, look this up and, and make this, get the full picture of, of all these parallels because it really does enrich your faith and um, causes us to, to know that God is still in control no matter what's going on around us.
brother answered that question on God to be in control of why they entered baptism. They call it a work called Catholicism Force Works. And then Luther, he dismissed works encountering uh, Catholicism. And it rolls out of there with faith only that it's not works of Catholicism. And it just drifted on down to our time. We don't want to have to do anything. Luther said we don't have to. Catholicism said we did. So Mike is saying that in, in regard to why people will not just simply have faith and obey, there is some historical precedence to it back in the in uh, 1600, 1500, 1600s. Uh, John Calvin uh, just was repudiated by the idea of works. And that has had such an impact on religious thought ever since then. And so it's, it's still a battle that we have to face as we are teaching uh, the scriptures today. Appreciate very much you being in class, and we'll take about a five-minute break here, and we'll have our devotional. If you have announcements, Brother Fletcher has the announcement board. <laughs>